So, for example, the United States has been able to somehow, through some excellent work, basically read Putin's email and the emails and the phone records of everyone in the inner circle and everyone in military planning. And so when we were got getting within a couple of weeks of the invasion, the Biden administration just started dropping this out there. And a lot of countries didn't believe it, but we now know in retrospect that they had everything. And my personal favorite is when the NSC published a couple of emails from their counterparts in Russia complaining about the NSC reading their emails. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. A new world order is becoming clearer by the day. And in our global macro series, I, along with my co-host, Jem Kazan, want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world will look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work in places that others may have missed. And we want to share our journey with you. Our guest today is one of the most sought-out people when it comes to understanding the geopolitical and demographic shifts we're witnessing right now. So please enjoy our conversation with geopolitical strategist and author Peter Seihan. Peter, welcome and thank you so much for joining Jim and I today for what I'm sure will be a fantastic and fun conversation as part of our Global Macro series. Now, I have read two of your amazing books, as well as having had a peek into the new book coming out in mid-June, and I wanted to just start out by saying that I really love your writing style, because you have a great way of making something that can easily be seen as a pretty gloomy topic into both fun <laughs> and captivating read. Uh, so I just want to start it by starting out and acknowledge that side of your skill set. So, uh, so well done and welcome. Well, thank you very much. Uh, my goal is not to depress people. That just kind of happens on the side. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, since it's your first time on our podcast here, perhaps I could ask you to maybe set the stage and provide a little bit of context for our conversation by just telling us a few highlights from your background, as this is, of course, very relevant for our conversation. And then we'll dive into all the different topics uh, afterwards. Sure. So I bounced around through a lot of political jobs um, when I was younger, local, state, national, international. I didn't really, none of them really stuck. And then I got challenged by somebody from my grad program to uh, look to a site called Stratfor. And I found a few errors in the first couple of pieces that I read, but I really liked the approach using geography. I'm a developmental economist. Uh, anyway, using geography as the basis for the work. So I wrote in and said, I love what, you lo what, love what you're doing, but it's A and not B and X and not Y. And I got a really snotty response 
uh, from the person who wrote the article who happened to be the president of the company. Uh, and that turned into a job interview, and I worked there for 12 years. And then about 10 years ago, I, I left and uh, took a few staff with me, and now I uh, fly around the world helping people make sense of the world that is shaping up in front of us. Absolutely, and we certainly need uh, some help to make sense of it. So, uh, so let's uh, let's dive in. Now, there are many different places where we could have started today, um, and kind of sadly, your books and your predictions have come to be very topical, I guess. But as you put it in the title of your new book, uh, this is only the beginning. So, before we can start to understand all the issues at hand and the directions that you think we're heading. Um, I do think we need maybe for you to bring us up to date on how we ended up in the situation today. And I don't need to, we don't need the full kind of background because we want to be forward looking, but I do think it's it's useful um, to know a little bit of what you think is the main reason why we got to where we are now. Of course. Uh, at the end of World War II, the Americans changed the way the world worked. Before the war, everything was imperial. So there was a Dutch system, a German system, a Russian system, a Japanese system, and so on. And those systems traded very little because if there was a war, even if neither of the uh, the traders were involved in it, uh, the, the supply chain system could be broken down and you would lose access to whatever you needed. So you kept things in-house whenever you could. Now, the Americans changed that system to what we now know as free trade. Uh, so the Americans committed their navy, which was really the only one of size to survive the war, so that anyone could go anywhere and interface with any partner and participate in any supply chain or access any raw material if, in exchange, they lined up with the United States to fight the Soviets in the Cold War. We bribed up an alliance, and that created the world that we know. But as soon as the United States did that, it made it very easy for smaller countries and former colonial possessions to be independent. And so everyone was able to specialize. Everyone was able to trade. Everyone was able to expand their economic wherewithal. And with that happening everywhere, more or less, at the same time, people started to use their new income and to move into jobs that were more value-add. And so we started moving off the farm and into the cities. And when you live on the farm, you have a lot of kids. But when you live in a city, they're an expense rather than a benefit. And so you have fewer of them. And bit by bit, this system spread around the world until with the fall of the Cold War, uh, it went everywhere. And so we have seen urbanization and industrialization happen on a scale that we never thought was possible. And we've seen birth rates drop to a rate that never existed before in the pre-war situation. And all of these issues come to a head this decade. Uh, the Americans have lost interest in maintaining the system. They've elected an anti-globalist seven times in a row. And now in the advanced world, there are no longer sufficient young people to even pretend to regenerate uh, the demographic structures moving forward, and they're all moving into mass retirement. And even in the younger countries, they've already aged past the point of potential reconstitution in most cases. So we now have a top-heavy demography that for the last 10 years has generated a lot more capital because when your kids move out and you haven't retired, you generate a lot of income and you can save it. But those people are all moving into retirement now. So this decade was always going to be the time we hit an, an investment bust, a production bust, and a consumption bust. And we don't have an economic model that works in that era. And so we're starting from scratch. And the Ukraine war is a hard stop. 
and coronavirus sped it up by a couple of years. And so here we are. Yeah. Now, I want to bring Jem in, but before I do, I just wanted to, because you mentioned this thing that you're obviously a very sought-after expert, and uh, as you mentioned, you you fly around the world, you speak to all these uh, large corporations, I imagine, and I also imagine that they all buy into kind of your roadmap. So I'm just curious, what are some of the wrong questions that they are asking themselves at the moment? The wrong questions? The wrong questions. <laughs> How are they looking at this in the wrong way, do you think? Uh That's going to be a different answer based on who I speak with, but definitely one of the big themes is when can we get back to normal? Mm-hmm. And when are we going to find a new balance that works for both the Americans and the Chinese? And those are definitely the wrong questions. Uh, the demographic system has tipped already, and so we're never going back to the consumption and production balance that we had in 2019. That got muddled by COVID. We were all worried about other things for two years. And in that time, we shifted. Uh, the Chinese are arguably the biggest beneficiary of the globalized system. And it hasn't really sunk in just how terminal this is going to be for them in, in every way that you measure it, demographically, economically, culturally, nationally. Uh, the Chinese aren't even going to exist as a country, I would say, by the end of the decade. Uh, and that's before you start factoring in some of the more acute things that are happening because the Ukraine war and their disruption to agricultural, industrial, and energy markets, in all cases of which the Chinese are the biggest loser from the war with the obvious exception of Ukraine itself. Mm. Yeah. What's on your mind, Jim? Well, <clears throat> I've listened to a lot of your stuff and read a lot of your stuff. Incredible analysis really opened my eyes to a lot of things. Um, so thank you, Peter. But i did want to be a little polemical here and kind of, uh, you know, push you on a couple of ideas and, of and um, you know, dig in a little bit. Um, one of the, um, one of the things you obviously that, that is at this core of what you uh, talk about is demographics, right? And obviously demographics has been critically important. So it's one of the driving forces of everything uh, in history. Um, that said, uh, you know, technology, technology has advanced dramatically, right? Um, it has reduced some of the need, particularly AI. Um, we're seeing in the labor force, right? Um, uh, in military actions, we have drones, we have the increasing role of robotics and hypersonic missiles. So I just wanted to ask you, what do you see as the role of technology? Do you see that diminishing the need and importance uh, uh, of these demographic trends that, we, that we've followed for uh, over many years? And uh, how do you see the role of technology? I, I want to throw in there You know, if you think about the Native Americans, when uh, when the Europeans came in, they had all the benefits of America. They had the geography, they had the resources, they had all. I mean, uh, you know, yet they didn't last very long, right? Um, so there there is a role for technology in history, obviously, and the importance of that. So I'd like to hear your thoughts about that. Sure, the technology absolutely plays a role, and it's intertwined into a lot of what I do. Uh, the question, of course, is whether or not everyone's at the same technological level or not. So one of the reasons that the Brits were so successful is not only were they an island, uh, so the technologies of deep water navigation worked better for them than they did for anyone else. Uh, they were also then the pioneers of what we now call the Industrial Revolution. And for a good century and a half, it really was just them that had mastered those technologies. And so for the purpose of imperial expansion, for a century and a half, the Brits literally brought a gun to a knife fight over and over and over and did very well. 
But as soon as the technology started to spread to other entities, we went to a broad-scale wars in which the Brits were a player, not the player. And ultimately, we ended up with all the colonies breaking away because even if... Even if you're at the top of the line for tech and your opponent is at the bottom of the line, and you're, but you're in the same technological suite, then it comes down to things like numbers. And uh, you know, 30,000 Brits occupied India until they couldn't. Right. Completely agree. So uh, given that, um, and, and obviously the massive expansion of technology in the last 20 years in particular, um, how inevitable is China's decline? Um, you know, how, I, would, yeah. I would say that we're well, well, well past the point of no return on that. Uh, the most recent data we've got out of, the, out of the Chinese suggests that their population actually peaked back in 2003 and that they've uh, been overcounting their population by perhaps as many as 100 million. Uh, all who would have been born since the one-child policy and most of whom are probably women. So the Chinese demography is actually more terminal already than the German or the Russian or the, the Korean demography. Uh, and that we can see that in adjacent related numbers, such as workforce uh, compensation rates. Uh, we've seen labor costs in China go up by about, about a factor of 15 since 1999, but productivity has only doubled. Uh, so technology has not gotten its hooks into China to the degree that it's been able to shift the pattern at all. Uh, in terms of technology in general, there are a couple things that you need to have a thriving tech sector. You need a lot of young people who are clever, who can interact with one another, highly educated. Uh, you need a metric boatload of money, uh, not just for the development of the tech, but for its prototyping and ultimately its installation and operationalization. We don't have that anymore. We've had a baby bust in most of the world that's 50 years old now. Uh, there just aren't enough young people in most countries. And now that the baby boomer generation is moving in retirement, there goes the capital base as well. Uh, and if you break up the world because of um, trade tensions or wars, then their ability to even interact at distance becomes constrained. So I expect the pace of tech globally to slow considerably. There will be some places like the United States that this is less true for because our our baby boomers actually had kids. We know them as millennials and they are now in that stage of their life where the creativity and the interaction is very important. And so it's not like Silicon Valley is going to die here, but it's not going to move forward at the pace that we've become used to. And a lot of the complementary systems around the world that provide either cooperation or competition simply aren't going to be there in a few years. If China takes Taiwan, which we can get into a little bit later, uh, sure. obviously 63% of the worldwide semiconductor output, does that change the balance of power technologically in any way? I, I don't mean to suggest that that would be a start of a peachy year. It wouldn't be. Um, but let's start with the, uh, the tech side of that and then go into the strategic side. Uh, yes. TSMC, the Taiwanese, they're great at semiconductors. No argument there. However, um, the United States actually produ produces 55% of the world's semiconductors by value. So if it's going into a cell phone or a server farm or a laptop, it probably comes from the U.S. 
The next tier down is where the Taiwanese and the Koreans are. The Japanese are probably up with the United States. Uh, and then the mid-tier, which is for like aerospace and cars, that's primarily Thailand and Malaysia. And the low-end stuff, like if you want, I don't know, a smart blender, that's probably coming from China. So all the Internet of Things, that's all the Chinese stuff. I've always been a little dubious of that personally. I, I don't need a smart refrigerator, but um, I, I would argue we can get by without that. Now, there's a lot of pinch points in all of this, uh, but let's talk about Taiwan specifically. If the Chinese were to capture Taiwan tomorrow without a shot being fired, they could not operate TSMC. Uh, if they could do something of that technological level, they would have done it years ago already. The Chinese will participate in any manufacturing that they can do. It doesn't matter if it's cost effective, they'll subsidize it because for them it's more an employment issue more than anything else. And the jobs that the United States has lost to China are ones that were in industries where the Chinese can compete. And everything that's left is something where they can't. The same goes for Taiwan. So overall, I'm not overly concerned about that, at least not from an economic point of view. I don't think that's part of the, the Chinese rationale. Also, all the designs that are uh, implemented in Taiwan are either done in the United States or done in in, uh, in Japan. So you'd have to assume that the Americans and the Japanese would then become complicit in the invasion. I think that's a, that's a, that's a bit of a, t a reach. Uh, beyond that, the Chinese Navy, while they do have more ships than the U.S. Navy, most of them are very, very small, and 90% of them can only sail 1,000 miles from the coast, assuming they're sailing in a straight line, moving slowly to conserve fuel, and no one is shooting at them. So they can't even make it uh, past Vietnam in force. So in the instance of a war, whoever the Chinese would be warring with, someone, the Koreans, the Taiwanese, the Vietnamese, the Japanese, the Indians, us, someone is going to put a couple of destroyers in the Indian Ocean Basin and cut the energy line. The United States hasn't been the world's top energy importer for a long time. It's been China. China imports 85% of their energy, and 85% of that comes from the Persian Gulf. So in a real war, that stops. And China literally deindustrializes in a matter of months. The trucks stop running probably in less than in three to six months, and you'll have mass famine in six to 12 that'll kill 500 million people. Now, normally, I would say that this would prevent the Chinese from seriously considering any sort of conflict. But as we're ending the, near, the edge of the, uh, the globalized era, uh, the math is changing. They realize now that they don't have a lot to lose, or more to the point, they're going to lose it anyway. And there's something to be said for choosing the time and place of the conflict so that you can write the narrative. And if for the low, low price of 500 million dead Chinese, the Communist Party can remain in control during the transition, that's a price worth paying. So I'd give it like a one in three chance that it's going to happen. That's interesting. I, um, you know, when they, when they released the joint communique with, with Russia, I believe February 7th, um, that, that was delightful, yeah, delightful right? In retrospect. Yeah. Historic piece of, um, literature. Um, they, um, they really did something that they have never done before, which is stop. Well, not never, but in, in recent history, which is stop walking that line, stop kind of playing both sides, stop looking to kind of the long term. Um, that's what was obvious about that document to me. Um, to me, it set off a lot of questions, right? Why, why choose Russia? Why choose now? And the only thing I could think of, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this is, you know, what does Russia give you? 
other than obviously commodities, right, to, to your point. And that's what they perceived as military. Now, we've seen that laid bare a bit lately, but, um, you know, there's no other military in the world other than the United States, right, that can uh, at least was perceived to operate at that technological level. That is what kind of has clued me into that the odds of this, at least at that point, uh, were actually significantly higher than people realize of that invasion in Taiwan. Now, they may have walked it back some since based on the optionality that they left themselves and what they've seen. But I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about that. And and you said a one in three chance. Um, I don't know. I'd just like to hear your thoughts about what do you think the the realities are of that happening at this point? How how the changes, um, you know, of what's happened on the ground may be affecting them as well. Sure. So <laughs> where to start with that? Um, let's start with the Chinese view about what's going on. Uh, when the war first started, they were really excited because they had always seen this as a potential template. You know, the, the Russians conquer Ukraine quickly, the world sucks it up, and Ukraine ceases to exist. The Russians absorb it, uh, the Russians pay no real diplomatic or economic price, and we go back to a multipolar world in which the Russians are bigger and everyone has just decided to uh, accept the done deal and move on. <laughs> yeah, that's not happening. Uh, so number one, uh, Ukraine, while they're massively overperforming, has really only been preparing for this war for eight years and did not have a lot of financial resources to do so. Taiwan has been preparing for war with China for 75 years, and they are a wealthy country, and there is not a flat land border between China and Taiwan. It's an ocean. So there's always going to be a much higher level of casualties and a much level, higher level of difficulty, and now the, uh, the Chinese know that. Uh, two, the sanctions. Uh, I got to admit, I'm really surprised that the world came together, especially Europe, in the way that it did so quickly. If those sanctions were put against China, it would destroy the regime. Say what you will about the Russian economy, but it is a large net exporter of energy, foodstuffs, and the stuff that is necessary to grow foodstuffs. The Chinese are huge importers of all of those things. So the same exact sanctions put against China would destroy the place in less than a couple of months. But I think the one issue that has terrified the Chinese the most is that uh, the, the boycotts. Everybody's left... Russia. And that is the development model for China. They need that for the market access. They need for the, that for the technological transfer. If they didn't have foreign corporations operating, you know, they'd be dead. And the most horrifying part is that consumers, individual people, have been able to pressure companies to leave Russia. Uh, the Chinese don't even admit that that's a force in the world, individuals. Uh, so everything that they thought they knew Everything that they thought was a base assumption that was fine has been ripped apart in the last six weeks, and they now have to start from scratch, and they can't. Because Xi has established a cult of personality that is so airtight that there's no one left in China with intellectual capacity that he hasn't exiled or imprisoned or intimidated into silence or flat out killed. He's the only one who can make decisions on anything anymore, and now he has to start from scratch while also ruling a country of 1.4 billion people. It's beyond him. And so we are seeing cascading, compounding failures throughout the Chinese system right now. Uh, probably the best example going on right now is the COVID lockdowns. 
the Chinese vaccine doesn't work. It barely worked against the original strain out of Wuhan. It was like 55% effective at preventing death, but it did nothing for severe disease. It did nothing for infection. Well, we're four variants down now with Omicron B, and it, the Chinese vaccine is useless against it. So their only possible tool is a full lockdown. But this thing is more communicable than measles. So right now we've got 65 cities in lockdown, the biggest of which is Shanghai. And Guangzhou is probably going to go into lockdown this coming week. And so the Chinese are no longer even reliable partners in supply chain manufacturing because they can't fight the virus effectively. So we're, we're seeing China removing itself by bit by bit or chunk by chunk from the entirety of everything that we've always associated with China, most notably in manufacturing. And so one of the fun things with some of my clients right now is, you know, I've been telling people for years that in some way this relationship was going to end. It could be because of trade or because of security, or because of ethics or because of the genocide or because of jobs or because of populism. You know, any of these factors could completely torpedo the relationship. Uh, so you need to start planning for what is going to be your next scheme for supply. And a lot of them who have chosen not to do anything are now calling me. They're like, what do we do? I'm like, well, three years ago, here's what you should have done, if you remember. Uh, but there's, there's limited labor in the United States and Mexico because of that demographic transition. And so the first mover advantage has gone to certain companies and everyone who's late to the game now has to figure out how to do something completely from scratch with new infrastructure in a new place. You don't do that in six months. Right. I had kind of a follow-up thought on, on the whole China thing and then, uh, and then maybe a little bit of an out, out there kind of question. Um, it's very interesting what you said about China and 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 really how difficult a situation they would find themselves in if they're subject to any, um, you know, any treatment uh, one way or the other, similar to what we've seen in Russia. But my guess is that she would have been pre-advised or warned around the time of the Winter Olympics that Putin was planning this. After after all, they met each other. You would think that maybe this topic came up and he would say, yeah, just do it after the Olympics and we're fine. But that to me also seems like, okay, but at least he believes China would be ready if something adversely were to happen to them in terms of of course, if they invaded Taiwan, sure. But also, if they were leaning too close to to Russia, and and the world started to say, "Well, hang on, you can't you can't do this," and 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 so on and so forth. So, I guess what I'm just saying is that maybe, as you suggest, maybe they have a completely different view of the world themselves as to their own readiness, preparedness than than we might think. Um, so I don't know if that, that makes sense. No, it does. It does. Uh, the problem with answering that is um, we have a cult of personality. And the only person who knows what's going on in Chinese policy for projecting forward is one guy who ha now has no one to talk to. Right. So, for example, the United States has been able to somehow, through some excellent work, basically read Putin's email and the emails and the phone records of everyone in the inner circle and everyone in military planning. And so when we were got getting within a couple of weeks of the invasion, the Biden administration just started dropping this out there. And a lot of countries didn't believe it, but we now know in retrospect that they had everything. And my personal favorite is when the NSC published a couple of emails from their counterparts in Russia complaining about the NSC reading their emails. Uh, <laughs> that was just funny. Thanks. Um, yeah. Well, that doesn't work in China. 
Putin has isolated himself. He only has about a dozen people he sees regularly. He only has about a half a dozen he trusts. But Xi has no one. And so no one is willing to bring Xi information unless it's specifically requested. Because it doesn't matter if it's good news or bad news. It's news. And if it clashes with what's going on in his head, they're out ahead. So our best understanding is that when Putin came to uh, Beijing, which, by the way, was the first world leader that Xi had met with since January of 2020, he's that isolated, uh, he believed everything that Putin told him because no one in his own intelligence services dared said any, say anything. And so when the invasion actually did happen, Xi was shocked because Putin lied to his face. Yeah. And I'm sure there was a bit of a purge within the remaining people who serve Xi, and so he's even more isolated now. Sure. So, so we, just, we just don't know, and more importantly, Xi doesn't know. And he has now removed himself from all capacity for learning and adapting. Interesting about the emails. I mean, I guess maybe we have to thank um, Windows 10 for some some work there. <laughs> you never know. But uh, uh, so my follow-up question is this crazy thought uh, or I idea. I love crazy thoughts. Okay, good. So um, you have talked and written so eloquently about how the U.S. has the only Navy um, of size and, and capability. So no, no questions there. But I did notice, and and you probably know whether this is true or not, I did notice that there's one area where China has more and Russia has as many as the US, and that's submarines. And so my thinking is, why would... And, and if if we think that both China and Russia has one common common enemy here, that is the, the US and, and that world order, why wouldn't they just sail one from the west and one from the east, get up along the coast of the US from both sides and unleash some of that stuff they can put on these submarines nowadays is that completely crazy because we you know we from from what i'm gathering from from a lot of your your work is that um and it kind of i have to throw in another crazy thought here uh peter i'm sorry about that is the war in ukraine and this is going to sound awful when i say it but is this kind of a convenient war in some ways for the us because It is in Europe yet again. The U.S. is not spending resources in defending themselves. They are producing stuff. They are selling stuff. They're giving it away. They're testing out their latest and greatest. I mean, it sounds awful when I say it, but no, no. It's I, I see your point. Um, let, let's start with the submarine issue. Okay. Uh, the Chinese, the Russian subs are fairly quiet. Not as quiet as the American subs. And while they're they do have a lot of them, most of them are not ballistic missile capable. Okay. Uh, also, uh, the Russian fleet is split into four. There's a Pacific fleet, a Baltic fleet, a uh, Black Sea fleet, and an Arctic fleet. So it's not like these are all in one place that they can sail together and do a giant armored punch. Um, and it's very easy to monitor. Everything that is coming out of the Black Sea, because it has to go through the Bosphorus. Everything that comes out of the Baltic, because it has to go through the Danish Straits. And everything that comes out of um, Murmansk on the Arctic, because there, there's a buoy line in the North Atlantic. So those three components of the fleets, I don't suggest that they're no challenge whatsoever. But it's really easy to have a force multiplier because of the geography. 
the Pacific Fleet is different because there's a trench right off that they can drop down into, drop below the thermocline, and then maybe be undetected. But the United States has been tracking them there for 60 years, and they're pretty good at it. So I'm not too worried about that. Uh, China has to get through the first island chain. And so no matter where the Chinese sail, they have to go through a strait that's monitored uh, visually and with sonar. Uh, so I don't mean to suggest that there's no military threat there at all, but it's a very manageable one. And it's impossible for the Chinese and the Russians to coordinate be just because of the geography. Uh, let's move to Ukraine. When the uh, Russians failed to take Kiev in the first week. They realized that this wasn't going to be an easy war and they needed to go back to one of their old old school plans that they did in, in uh, excuse me, World War II, but then resurrected for Grozny and then polished in Aleppo. And that is a complete obliteration of all civilian infrastructure. The idea being if you destroy the capacity of people to live in a place, they will naturally split themselves into two groups. One becomes refugees, and they leave, and so you don't have to worry about them. And the other become fighters, and so anyone who stays, you can shoot on sight. And we're seeing that being carried out in Mariupol right now, where the Russians don't just have their better troops, they've also brought in the Wagner Group uh, and mercenaries from Syria and the Chechens, and they're literally going block to block shooting anyone who happens to be left. We know that it's already killed at least 50,000. It's probably closer to 100. And they're just going to go until there's no one left. And that is now the strategy for each and every Ukrainian city. Now, that is horrific. From an amoral point of view, it's a reasonable war plan when your goal is not necessarily to take the territory, but to get past the territory to get to what you really want. The Russians are trying to plug the gaps in the mountains and between the mountains and the seas that have always been the invasion corridors. And there's two of those corridors on the other side of Ukraine, one that goes southwest into Romania and one that goes uh, northwest into Poland. That's what they're ultimately after here. And if they don't have to occupy a population in Ukraine, that actually makes their long-term job easier if they can win the war. Here's the problem from the American point of view. You guys remember that 40-mile convoy? in the first week of the war that was going down from Belarus to Kiev? Well, it stalled out in a day because they forgot to bring fuel trucks. And two days later, the soldiers had to walk back to Belarus because they had run out of food. Now, American defense planners looked at that and got really excited. They're like, oh, wow, the Russians aren't as tough as we thought. We can totally take them in a war. And then everyone had a nap and thought about it for a while. They're like, holy crap, the Russians are not all that. We can totally take them in a war. Since we know that the Russians' intention is not to stop in Ukraine and is to go into multiple NATO countries, we know that that fight between American and Russian forces is destined to happen. And we now know how it will end. The Russians will be obliterated and they'll be faced with a simple choice, a strategic retreat across the entire line of contact all the way back to Russia, maybe even further, or escalate to involve nukes. Since the Russians see this as an existential crisis, that's a fight we have to prevent. And so the United States, specifically NATO in general, is sending any weapon system that we possibly can that can be carried or put in a truck. Nothing that requires on-site training, Nothing that requires a supply chain that involves Americans because then you have an American defense envelope. Nothing that requires American troops on the ground. But everything else we're sending in because if we can't kill Russia 
in Ukraine, nukes come into play. And that is what we're trying to avoid now. Yeah. Sorry, Jim, just to, just one follow-up. Speaking of that, and, and by the way, I'm Danish by background, and, and, and of course, the, the former uh, Secretary General of NATO was Danish as, as well. Um, and he admitted on television not long ago that, uh, frankly, under his reign, that they had completely underestimated uh, or misread the situation um, over, the, over the years, so to speak. Uh, and of course, we know the NATO countries never paid up to the 2% that they had promised in 2011, all of that stuff. But just out of that uh, topic, I mean, I think I heard last night um, that actually now they will be receiving even helicopters, uh, the Ukraine. And, you know, and then you could ask, well, what's the difference between a helicopter and a fighter jet? I mean, they're both in the air, all of that stuff. My, my, my question is really, at what point do the, do the NATO countries give a piece of weaponry that the Russians say, uh-uh, that is one step too far. Now we are at war with NATO. Yeah, oh, and that's absolutely the concern. And that's one of the reasons why the United States is going for man-portable and truck-portable stuff. Uh, countries okay. that are closer to Europe, obviously, even if this war doesn't go nuclear, if you're Poland and you're Romanian, you know ultimately the Russians are coming for you, that changes your math and that changes the risks you're willing to take. And if you border Poland or Romania, same general thing. Also, the Central European countries have a lot of equipment that dates back to the Soviet period that the Ukrainians know how to work. So you don't have to worry nearly as much about that logistical supply line. The concern is going to be fuel. Ukraine used to get all of their fuel from Russia. And now we're in a situation where if you're going to supply them with something like a helicopter, that takes a lot of fuel. And so there are going to be trucks that have to cross and there has to be supply chains going back and forth. Uh, luckily, a fuel truck doesn't necessarily require a NATO driver. You can just turn that over to Ukraine. But I totally agree that we are, we are moving into a gray area here bit by bit by bit. Uh, the systems that the Americans are providing are upgraded systems of the things that the Ukrainians already know. So, for example, um, when we went from javelins to stingers, not a big leap in terms of training. When we went from javelins to switchblades, same general thing. And once you can operate a switchblade, you can operate a switchblade uh, B, which is the one with the bigger warhead. So bit by bit by bit, we're moving up. Uh, the, uh, the opportunity slash concern for the next stage that the Americans are considering are Predator and Reaper drones. That requires a little bit more maintenance because they're not fire and forget. They actually come back and have to land. But... If we can get predators and reapers into the Ukrainians' hands, they can blow up the Kirk, the Kerch Strait bridge, and then all of a sudden, the Crimea is completely cut off. And from a war point of view, that would be fantastic because most of the gains the Russians have been aid have been out of Crimea. Uh, we're in war. There are risks. Yeah. Uh, Keeping the war in Ukraine is the best way the U.S. has right now to manage that risk. I don't mean to suggest it's perfect. Sure. Are we going to be able to keep it in Ukraine in your estimation? I mean, you're, you're negotiating <laughs> with a, a terrorist, right? Essentially, uh, they have a, a gun to your head, and which is nuclear weapons. And uh, we're, we're, because of that, trying to negotiate. Uh, we're being incremental, trying to appease 
Um, yeah, there, there, there's no negotiation with the Putin government right. on this. Uh, the Russians, peop, the Russians, the government, and the people see getting control of those gateways as an existential threat, and they know because of their advanced uh, decrepitude in their demographic structure that this is their last chance. If they don't do it now, they it won't happen. And then the next time there's a real war, the Russians will be unmoored in the Eurasian hordelands, and they will have nowhere to hide and nothing nowhere to regroup. Uh, there's no defensive position east of the Polish and the Bessarabian gaps. And the Russians would be completely destroyed in the next war. That's why they're doing it now. They are not interested in talking. Any talk of negotiations is just fluff to distract from the fact that they are in the first stage of a war that is meant to obliterate two countries and occupy all or, four, all or more of five more. Given that isn't, I mean... I feel like uh, there has to be a, a, almost a calling of that, as scary as it sounds, a nuclear bluff, right? I mean, there, if you continue to um, appease because of your fear of that, uh, that detonation of that jacket, right, um, ultimately you, uh, you're going to lose this war in Ukraine. So what do you do? Uh, when you're negotiating, yeah, I would argue that there's nobody in the West who's doing the appeasement right now. There's definitely levels of commitment that are different, um, and I think we're only a few weeks away from either the Europeans, number one, putting a spine in Germany and cutting off the energy exports, or number two, the Ukrainians just saying screw it and blowing up the pipelines themselves. Because right now, you know, the Russians are getting almost a billion dollars a day of income from their sales to Europe, and that is not a tenable situation. Uh, especially considering what is at stake here for the rest of the world. I wanted to shift gear a little bit, and Jim, you can come back to this topic, uh, of course, but I wanted to shift gear and ask you about something um, slightly different. Um, kind of, You obviously are, are predicting certain things in, in your new book. Um, one of the things um, that I'm thinking that comes to mind is kind of this age of emergency, meaning we've had COVID um, and that led to, and I've, I'm just using in particular the Danish government's approach, even though I, I live in Switzerland, but I follow the Danish uh, approach. And so many things ever since COVID has been called an emergency. And that has led to some completely unthinkable policies that you, we could never imagine 24 months ago being put in place. Um, and, and you know, obviously we have a health emergency, we have a climate emergency, we have a national security emergency, we have inequality, which could easily be called an emergency as well. My question to you is, if that is something that you share or not, what are the dangers to democracy as we know it? Because it seems like in the famous words of Draghi, whatever it takes is kind of how they playing these emergencies, right? So I'm just curious as to how you see democracy in, in our part of the world being affected by these type of policies, which are, of course, somewhat related, of course, to what's going on and to your thesis about deglobalization, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it just strikes me as worrying in terms of how much control and power they have accumulated in a very short space of time, even in our world. Usually in times of stress, the state tends to strengthen. And usually in times of war, the state tends to weaken because it needs to throw a wider net for support. So there are patterns in play that I'm you know, not exactly comfortable with. But when I look forward, when I look into the crystal ball and I see simultaneous supply chain 
breakdowns in manufacturing, transport breakdowns that make extra-regional trade almost impossible, uh, energy breakdowns that f force countries to stop using oil and natural gas without having an alternative except for maybe coal, and then agricultural breakdowns, which are going to make at least half of the world's population food insecure. So these are not the sort of things that would normally generate a strong state. I think we're going to see dissolution in more places uh, than we have. Well, we, we are definitely going to see state dissolution in more places than we have seen for the last 75 years. We've been living in the most charmed period in human history. For the countries that can make a go of it, it all depends upon how reliable their, their food and their energy supplies are and whether or not they can muster the internal finance uh, to generate their own supply chains. That's easier with large polities than it is with small ones. So the United States, it's energy self-sufficient. It's a massive energy uh, agricultural exporter. Uh, its baby boomers are retiring, but as a percentage of their overall population, their baby boomer class is actually the smallest in the world. And so their financial crunch isn't going to be nearly as bad. They've got Mexico next door with a healthy demography. They've got Canada for raw materials, the Western Hemisphere for raw materials. The United States can grow through all of these problems. Uh, and even there, we are going to see the state gain additional power. In Europe, uh, I mean, you're going to lose four to five million barrels a day of crude from the Russians within a couple of months. The only way you keep the lights on in Europe is to go and reinterface with the former colonies in Africa and force them to redirect their flows to Europe. To survive in the world that we are going to, Europe has to become neo-colonial. How is that compatible with now what we understand as liberal multi-party democracy? We're going to find out. Remember, the entire economic model that the world is based on whether it's fascism or communism or socialism or capitalism, it's all based on the concept that the pie is either stable or getting bigger, usually because of population growth. Well, now it's going to get smaller because of population collapse. At the same time, it's going to break into pieces. Everyone's going to have to find their own way to navigate that. And if democracy is something to be preserved, it goes into the mix in terms of a value statement that you can or cannot preserve. I'm far more worried about Central European and Southern European democracy than I am about Northern or Western, because Northern or Western has the capacity to go out and get some of what they need. They're going to be a little hypocritical about it when they do it, but the alternative for them is to deindustrialize. I want to pull on this thread a little bit here, um, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, this idea of democracy versus autocracy, we've obviously seen a massive shift in the last 20, 30 years towards autocracy. Some of that um, has been driven uh, by kind of the breakdown um, of some of the checks and balances in the West. Um, the entropy, if you would, if, you know, driven um, of, of these checks and balances that the founding fathers in America kind of created to preserve the Republic. Some of that uh, has been a function of inequality, right? Monetary policy in the United States has dramatically, and the world over, has dramatically accelerated inequality in the world, supply-side economics, money to capital. Ultimately, um, though, we have seen something that is generally exceedingly rare in the history of the world. You know, 300,000 years of, a, of, of human history, you know, personal freedom, you know, threat from, from power is, is, is rare, right? The survival of the fittest. So, so 
Do you see the entropy of democracy broadly on the world stage, particularly given the power of technology to, to empower autocratic regimes? Um, how do you see that playing out as we move forward? Assuming for the moment you've got the food and the raw materials and the energy and the finance, which we've already like eliminated 80% of the world's countries. <laughs> Assuming you've got that, we're moving into a period where the younger generation is smaller than it's ever been. Uh, that would suggest that labor is actually going to have a leg up in those societies. We're certainly seeing that in the United States. It may not be the political democracy that we always have said we're, that we're after, but there is a degree of economic democracy that I think strengthens any sort of democratic system. So that is definitely happening here. We have seen greater wage appreciation in the last two years in the United States than we have in the last 20 for the lower tier economically. And I think that's great to a degree. Um, it's also inflationary. That's another problem. Uh, in countries that don't have those inputs, however, the world's probably going to look a lot more like Pakistan, where there's a functional slave class because so many things are in scarcity that whoever can control their supply is the one with the power. And again, back to that threat of technology, I mean, we've seen in, in China, obviously they have their own demographic and uh, resource-driven issues, but uh, the power of technology to control, right? We're seeing it during Oh, COVID. I see what you're after here. Okay. Right? And so the, 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 the monitoring yeah, systems. Yeah, so uh, you know, autocracy broadly, the, the problem with it historically is it's unstable, right? But technology does provide a 1984-style um, solution. solution, right? <laughs> Um, and then the question is, can it be, right? Um, or are you just skeptical that, that, that that's possible? Sure. Um, well, we're, we're, we're testing the bounds because we've never done this before. Uh, the closest uh, existing system to that would be the fascism as practiced by the Nazis, where they experienced a technocratic government control of the means of production, the means of consumption, the means of communication. Uh, what the Chinese are doing right now is that kind of on steroids. Uh, there's an open question if the World War II had not happened, whether or not it could continue to contain German society. We don't know. So we, we have a, a example list of zero here for knowing if this works. Uh, on, the, on the negative side, let's start with that. When the, when the Arab Spring hit Egypt, there was a rebellion against the Mubarak government that the military approved of. And so they allowed all the technological means of communication to continue. Two years later, when it was the military who didn't like the government, they shut it off. There were only two places where uh, internet cables come into the country. They cut them both. They disabled the cell towers and they were able to easily overthrow the government. Within a year, the Russians were in Egypt to study what the generals did. And they went back home and they put kill switches on all the cables that come into Russia. There's only four of them. Uh, and have done kind of a poor man's version of what the Chinese have done within Russia. And it's been very effective. Uh, now, they're also at war now. But I would argue 85% of the Russian population, even if they were freed from the propaganda, would still support the Russian government's war aims. And the people that refused are the people who left. And that's probably a half a million people by now. But that's all of them. So when you look at a situation like China, that system is stable until it's not. As long as certain basic needs as the Chinese define them are met, it works. 
there's no risk of rebellion in China until those needs are no longer being met. So until now, I, I really didn't have a lot of hope for any sort of popular uprising. The math may be changing now. Uh, we now have an endless COVID lockdown. That's their new normal. There's a food insecurity issue because they can't get African swine fever out of their pork herd. Uh, there's an energy issue because of what's going on with the Russian war and deglobalization in general. And the world writ large is starting to look at Taiwan from the point of view of an American hawk. And that uh, there's nothing here that we can talk about anymore. It's just a question of how we protect ourselves or how we fight back against it. And in that environment, perhaps, perhaps, the math will change because life will no longer be stable for the average Chinese citizen. But I wouldn't bet that's going to go in a, a, a cooperative direction from the West's point of view because it's just as likely to spawn uh, a massive outpouring of globalization as well. But I mean, the bottom line is we don't know. We've never seen this before. Um, when it was with Telegraph and the fax machine, that democratized communications. That's part of why the Soviet Union fell. But this is the opposite. This is a complete information control state. Uh, and we're going to be studying this for the next century, no matter how it it's goes. It's a brave new world. Yeah. You, um, you of course, um, have, have written and, 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 and for many years about kind of the coming deglobalization. So everything we've experienced, certainly in our lifetime, is going to end and um, and the world will go in reverse, so to speak. Which reminds me a little bit about this Seinfeld episode with George Costanza, where he realized he has, just has to do the opposite and he'll be successful. Um, <laughs> but um, but but and 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 before I get to my question, because I do want to dig into a little bit about some of the things that you do see coming. We've touched upon it a little bit, but there's one thing that kind of again, maybe I'm being too. Uh, um, conspiratorial uh, in in my mind, but you have written uh, well. I guess what we're all witnessing right now is how, um, and I guess too few of the political so-called experts uh, have read your books because we weren't very well prepared for many of these things. Um, but one thing that you've written about is this, uh, the food crisis, right? And we see that now. Um, and how the US is obviously well positioned even in that area and how... Um, and and I guess I also back in the seven was it in the seventies that Russia had a big drought or something like that where we where the U.S. actually came in and they provided uh, food um, to the Russians um, at a critical time for them. But what was interesting was uh, a year ago or maybe eighteen months ago, I had an interview uh, with a CEO of a new technology company, I guess, or platform, where you can buy U.S. farmland in small tokens, right? You can invest, so everyone can kind of invest in farmland. And what he told me, and kind of going back to this Windows 10 we talked about earlier, he told me that actually the biggest farm landowner in the U.S. of farmland is Bill Gates. The, the largest single individual, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he got it right with all the patents when the COVID came, right? He seems to have, have figured that one out. And now the farmland. So I'm just thinking he yes, he's well well connected there. Well, I've just, I, I wouldn't read too much. And it's not like he's got 50% of the total or 5% of the total or half of 1% of the total or half of 1,000th right. of 1% of the total. Uh, you, you don't have to own a large chunk of land in the United States to be the single largest owner because there's a lot of land. Right. Uh, okay. Also, our single biggest foreign—I'm sorry, not our biggest—single um, investor. Uh, the country that owns the most American farmland is Canada, and it's about two percent of the total. And everyone else combined is less than three percent. So it really is broken down into tiny, tiny, tiny bits. 
Okay. Okay. So no, I mean, you obviously highlight uh, in 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 your latest work and and what's coming out in a couple of months some key areas of things that you see um, changing dramatically. If you kind of touched upon them uh, already, transport, finance, energy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I was just wondering if there are some, and I guess maybe what also globalization did was this uh, financialization uh, as well. And so, if we, if, since both Gemini is from the financial world, I, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the financial part of things? We've heard a lot about agriculture, we've heard a lot about energy, but what do you see are the dangers for kind of how we understand and how we think about finance uh, today? Because that's what we know, and we don't know what's on the other end of that. Well, there's on the macro side, there's the whole stocks versus bonds issue. Stocks require a stable system with a lot of liquidity. That's not going to exist in a lot of places. I see most of the world's smaller stock markets just going away. Uh, right. Bonds is the way that larger companies and governments have obviously raised money, and there's going to be a lot of that in the future. But the cost of it is going to be extreme because the need is going to be massive, but the people who actually have investment capital are relatively limited. So I think if you start by thinking of the dark doldrums of the, the mid-70s in the immediate aftermath of the, the uh, oil crisis, if you're not ready for at least that, you're not going to have the stomach for what's coming. So that's just kind of like the bare minimum that you should consider. It'll probably never be that good, but if you can't deal with that now, you probably need to find another career. Uh, on the bigger side, the, the, like the Uber macro, uh, one of the unfortunate facts is that every currency system that has ever been backed by a metal throughout history has ultimately failed by its success. Because if you have a successful currency system that people trust, people want to use it. They want to use it for a medium of trade. They want to use it as a store of value. And if they do that, eventually, so many people will be piling into your currency that you're going to need more metal to support it. And so you're going to have to expand physically to get the metal, go to war to get the metal. And so everyone who's ever done that has eventually expanded past the point that their system collapsed. Doesn't matter if it's the Spanish or the Romans or the Brits, everybody. So the only thing that might work is fiat and that's all about trust and in a world that deglobalizes and where agriculture and energy are circumspect at best there aren't going to be a lot of countries out there that people are willing to trust and i see because of that the united states not just continuing to be the supreme currency but really being the only one of size that's globally traded uh, now, I realize that clashes with like half of the investment theses out there, <laughs> but um, most of them are based on the idea that globalization can happen and no one will shoot at each other ever again. And I think we've put a bullet in that theory uh, back on February 22nd pretty thoroughly. But I would, yeah, and, and just to follow up on that, if, if I think from a European perspective, I mean, it almost sounds like if we're going to be more local and concerned about local issues, like the Germans will have their energy issue and the Danes will have their issues and the French, et cetera, et cetera, it, it seems quite unlikely that things like the euro should survive in a, in a world like that, where we're not really, as you say, we're not trusting as much uh, each other, that it's all kind of going in, in reverse. Have you, have you any thoughts about... Lots. Europe. <laughs> okay. For, from okay. an economic point of view, you're absolutely right. 
Uh, there's not the same, nearly the same trust in uh, the European Central Bank that there is in the U.S. Federal Reserve. There's not nearly as much trust among the American economy, or I'm sorry, among the European economies as there were, are among the American states. There's certainly not as much interest in the wider world in using the euro versus the dollar. Uh, the Europeans have shown on multiple occasions they're willing to manipulate the value of the dollar in order to achieve certain program goals, uh, which is something the United States honestly has never done. I mean, we've got QE1 and QE2, and they were little bumps in the the M2 supply, less than 1% of the total, whereas the Europeans will go by 10, 20% at any given time in order to achieve something. From an economic point of view, it doesn't work, especially if we're moving into a world where Europe is one of the most advanced aging societies ever and just doesn't have consumers. But the euro is not just an economic project. It's also a political project. Mm -hmm. And if there is any, any, any hope for Europe to not fall back into their pre-1945 habits... The euro has to be a centerpiece of that. Now, in the end, do I think that will fail? Yeah. But I would have never guessed on February 22nd that the Europeans would have stuck together as much as they have on the Ukraine war. I've been pleasantly surprised. I would love to be pleasantly surprised on the euro as well. I don't think we can talk about the future and currency without at least bringing up crypto, right? I know. I know sure. you're. Sure. <laughs> we can crap on crypto real quick. <laughs> I know you're a crypto skeptic. Um, I tend to be as well. Um, to be clear, but I do want to be polemical with this because I do see there being a path um, uh, in which in which crypto does play a major role in the future. I agree with your general thesis of digital currency, um, you know, being controlled by sovereign um, countries, and, and it's moving in that direction. But that that crypto, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but but crypto uh, being kind of a non, uh, not having a, a sponsor, if you will, and being independent is uh, almost impossible. Um, that said, um, obviously crypto is, um, you know, the more digital currencies get adopted, the more control there is and oversight there is over money, um, the more distrust there is in this world. Um, uh, you can't help but think that, that the appeal, um, to the masses of, uh, being wrested from that constraint becomes more appealing particularly for a generation that has now grown up with technology as a solution for all these problems um, in the last 20, 30 years, um, a, a, with a natural um, distrust for government driven by inequality. A lot of the um, the belief in crypto is, is essentially religious almost at this point for this generation that is growing to power. What are your views on, on its potential for serving as a um, an outpost, a, a, a future kind of uh, new America, if you will, uh, a resting of control from the powers that be. Yeah, less than zero. <laughs> um, crypto can only work if it has regular interfaces with the real economy and it's liquid in an exchange and it's neither of those things. Uh, also, it can't be a currency per se because no one's in control of the money supply. Um, Bitcoin's probably the worst example of what might theoretically work because supposedly it's available in limited volume. Uh, but but no, I, I just I see no potential there. I don't see it serving a need. I don't see it having a use. It's definitely not a store of value or a medium of exchange. Now, does that mean that there is something out there that could serve all those roles? Well, yeah, we call it gold, uh, limited in supply. Uh, but I mean, it has all the negatives of crypto, with one exception: it actually exists. It's a physical thing. Uh, and because it has industrial uses, it will always have a base value. Whereas crypto's net value, especially if we move into a world where we hope to regulate carbon at all, 
Bitcoin anyway, its its net value is negative. Uh, it just it just it doesn't match any of the criteria for any useful economic asset. Since we don't have inf infinite time with you, Peter, uh, I do want to jump around in a few different topics before uh, we let you go, if that's okay with you. So different things. So climate change, you have written so elegantly about the fact that what really makes a city or a country or a state successful is its proximity to rivers, water, rivers. Um, if and and. I think that's pretty clear. And if if I look at it from, say, a European perspective, um, if climate change is a thing, and I have no opinion whether it is or it, or it isn't, um, because certainly there is some reports out there that this is just a, a cycle of sunspots and it's going to go cold again at some point, but whatever it is, rivers in Europe, like the Rhine, last year, I think it was, last summer, I think we started to see some extraordinary flooding happening in Germany that we had not seen before. So can the fact that it's been an advantage up until now, being close to a river, that's where all the industry is placed and and and, and so on and so forth, can that actually also, like uh, George Costanza, go into the opposite direction? I'm not too concerned about that because if a river has higher or lower flow, as long as it's still navigable, it doesn't matter. Uh, we, we've got plenty of methods for containing floods. I mean, the Dutch are obviously the world class at that. Uh, so there's engineering that needs to be done. And if there's anything that the Germans know how to do, it's engineer. I'm not over worried about that. My concern is when you're making a forecast based on climate change is that our data sucks. Um, do we know the world is heating up? Yes. Do we know that warmer water warmer air holds more water and so can make bigger storms? Yes. I mean, that that's not really disputed. But if you want to say what that means for a specific town, now you're going off the reservation. We do not have data for that. Uh, the best example I can point to is here in the United States in the summer of 2021, uh, the city of Portland, which is normally rainy, overcast, and cool, uh, got hotter for a two-week period than Las Vegas has ever been. No wow. one predicted that. We predict that deserts will get hotter. We predict that marshlands might expand. You know, we, we have these general things, but when it comes down to what happens on this square kilometer of land, we have no idea. Uh, moving forward, that means we should expect change, but we shouldn't expect that change to be overly predictable at the, at the urban level. Uh, so my work with climate change focuses on those grand general generalities that we know we, that have to be true. So... You raise an area by one degree, what does that mean for agriculture? Uh, and it's usually a balance between what you brought up, rivers and water, and temperature. We know that crops generally are fairly temperature hardy. You can raise the temperature up to 10 degrees, and they'll still be there, assuming they get enough water. And so I'm most concerned about the more arid parts of the world, which is where most of our wheat is grown. So humanity's number one crop is actually the one facing the greatest danger. Right. Now, Jim, I know you have some questions about a little bit about what investors uh, might want to do in, 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 in the future. But before you, you, you go that direction, just one thing, given all the studies you've done, especially about demographics, et cetera, et cetera, I was just curious to know your thoughts. And I imagine that you're familiar with his work, Neil Howe and Bill Strauss' work, The Fourth Turning whether this really is something of a thing in your mind uh, that, you know, we because they obviously predicted this or the uh, a fourth turning to uh, to have started in around 2005, seven ish leading into about 2020, 
oh sorry 2032 or thereabouts is is how i remember it but is is this just this ties in perfectly with your work or i'm gonna have to put that in the coincidental issues um they're looking at different trends that i don't consider myself an expert in so i really i really don't know um it, it strikes me as a little bit too convenient of a pattern personally but again, this is not where I, I focus. I focus on deglobalization. I focus on depopulation because we know where this goes. And we know where right. this has been going since the 1960s. Uh, it's just that we're finally reaching the transition period this decade. Yeah, I mean, a pretty straightforward question here. I mean, obviously, you have very strong views on uh, deglobalization um, and, and, and how we're um, likely to trend as a world economy uh, and the importance of resources um, generally in that environment. Um, so there's some kind of obvious things, uh, trends we could we could uh, think about in terms of investment ideas. But as a top traders unplugged, we you know we would we'd be doing ourselves a disservice and our listeners a disservice if we didn't get a little more specific there. Do you have any specific thoughts in the next five ten years um, in terms of best investment pieces, countries, sectors? Um, you know where would you be putting your own money uh, in this in this environment? Okay, let me start by saying I'm not a CFA <laughs> and I'm certainly not a day trader. Right. Okay, so I, I look for long-term Absolutely. trends that match up with my general analysis. Uh, so with that kind of put to the side as a caveat, uh, I am most interested in things that are in very large markets with deep pools of liquidity, which for the moment now is really just the United States. Uh, I want products that are energy intensive in their production because in the United States, because of the shale revolution, we have the cheapest oil, the cheapest natural gas, the cheapest electricity. Uh, that's a huge competitive advantage, particularly as global supply chains break down. I look for things where their demand is demographically driven. Uh, because the United States has the healthiest demography in the rich world, and Mexico has the healthiest demography in the advanced and uh, developing world. And if the product is exportable, great, because as supply chains globally break down, but North American ones get stronger, there's an arbitrage opportunity as well. Um, And then, of course, because of the Ukraine war, I'm getting very, very big in the things that we need to make things that are no longer going to be flowing from the Russian system. So that's bauxite and aluminum, that's titanium, uh, steel, pig iron, uh, wheat, nitrogen-based fertilizers, phosphate-based fertilizers. If you can find any of that that is in the Western mold or specifically in an American firm that is not exposed to the former Soviet Union, that's the catch there. Uh, they're good. The problem with all of this is that it doesn't match the investment theses that have been coming out in this capital-rich period where anyone can throw money at anything and it'll stick. Uh, so, like, if you want to invest in agriculture, for example, it's a global fund. And obviously, obviously it touches uh, companies like Bungie that are very heavily invested into Ukraine and Russia, and they're losing everything. Uh, so you have to go more specific, and that's a lot more legwork. Uh, I would say overall, if you could only take one piece of advice away from this, uh, the period of bottomless supplies of capital are ending, and that means capital is going to become harder to get, and that means we're probably going to have a lot fewer financial professionals, and they're going to have to prove that they offer a value add because high-frequency trading doesn't work, broad index funds don't work, ETFs don't work in this environment. If there's less money available and there's more people who need it, the cost of that capital will rise. And if you are an investor, there's some wonderful opportunities here. But 
you have got to do your homework. You just can't rely on your CFA to go out and identify a half dozen funds, dump your money in, and then go and do something else. That doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Sounds like we can add private equity <laughs> to that list when cap cost yeah. of capital goes up. That's reasonable. Yeah, you're, you're, that's the argument that we've been making here for, for quite some time as well. We definitely seem to be at an inflection point. Um, I would add one more last question to that. Obviously, monetary policy has driven the world economy for the last 40 years, really uh, particularly for the last 20 to 30. Um, and we've seen a shift to fiscal. Um, that has was what originally kicked off the inflation here um, after COVID um, you know, hit here um, in the West. We now see a lot more populism globally and a lot more governmental um, intervention. Um, what do you see as government's role in uh, kind of in investment and allocation of capital if the if to tie this into the fourth turning you know a lot of these cycles that we've seen are really um if you model them um a function of generational shifts from uh you know investment via capital investment uh, to labor um and the and what that causes in in terms of um trends and changes uh, in political cycles but i'd be curious to hear your thoughts um about that i know it's a lot to <laughs> well Remember when I said we don't have an economic model for where we're moving? We don't have a political model for it either. <laughs> uh, now, in the United States and in Mexico, where the change is happening most slowly, we're going to be able to tinker with the existing system uh, for at least another 30 years. But in Europe and East Asia, where it's in collapse now, they're going to have to figure out a new way to do all of this. So hopefully those of us who are in North America can look to the Eastern Hemisphere and learn a few things, or even if it's just a few things that we shouldn't do, as opposed to might try. Uh, my biggest concern moving forward is that every time we've had a clash of economic models, especially when they've been in their infancy and just being developed, we have had conflicts. Uh, the Cold War, the German Wars, at, at their heart, economic theory was there. It wasn't just geography. It wasn't just materials. It was about the role of the state. Well, we now get to do that on a global basis during an energy crisis and a food crisis and a financial crisis. We're not going to get it right on the first try. Yeah, it's like the 1930s and the 1960s, but in you know hyperdrive, I couldn't agree more. Right, but with the uh, the stresses of the 1850s. Now, um, sort of as part of our wrapping up, I, I wanted to ask you just um, given everything you know and 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 all that you've been predicting so accurately for for many years. Is this the reason why you kind of uh, left the big city life and to move to the mountains? Is that where it's, it's the safest place to be? And maybe as a follow-up, is there anything or is there one or two things of all that we've talked about today and all the things we didn't have time to, to talk about today that kind of keeps you up at night more than other things? Sure. So I moved out here because my free time is in the summer and I used to live in Texas. And so I would come home in like March for a weekend and the weather would be glorious and I'd do my laundry and then I'd head out again on Monday. Um and then I'd get home for the summer and everything was on fire. So it's, it's just that living out in Colorado in the Highlands more matches my, uh, my work schedule sure. and I love it. Uh, the thing that worries me the most is food. Um, 
over the last 70 years, globalization has allowed every agricultural producer to specialize in whatever grows best in their climate. So we now have avocados in North Carolina, and we now have corn in Iowa, and Florida and, I'm sorry, California and Florida are, are big into orcharding, for example. <sighs> If you break down the global system, people are going to be more responsible for their own food production. And that means a lot less specialization and bringing wheat back to the core of the production system. In the United States, where we're a large geography, uh, that's not a big issue. But everywhere else, the smaller the country in particular, the more of a problem that is. Because it used to be, and in globalization, you could export kumquats and import wheat or export cars and import wheat. That's not going to be an option for most countries. And even before you consider things like the breakdown in the fertilizer supply chain, which we are already hip deep in because of the Ukraine war, simply matching production of each country to each country's needs is going to reduce the amount of calories the world grows by more than half. So in the best case scenario where there are no wars over anything, we're already looking at having 3 billion more people than we can support, minimum. Yeah. I am yeah. hoping with gains in technology that some of the countries that can keep producing a broad-based system, I think the US and France are gonna be at the top of that list. Australia is probably on that list. Argentina, assuming they can get their head out of their asses on that list. Uh, you know, That'll hopefully, along with the shift from large-scale animal protein to large-scale plant protein, reduce the number of people who die of famine over the course of the next 20 years to only a billion. That's still some horrific shifts, and I don't see any way uh, to avoid it. Right. Now, um, because there were so many things we could have asked you and so many topics we could have discussed, I do want, before we wrap it up completely, uh, I do want to ask you whether there is anything that we missed that you really would like to bring <laughs> up uh, at this stage. No, you're fine. It's a big world. There's a lot going on. If I can do it, just do one plug real quick, though. Uh, there's a group Absolutely. called the AFYA Foundation, A-F-Y-A. Uh, they provide medical assistance to the Ukrainian refugee community. There's already over six million of them in Europe, and there's another six to seven million displaced in Ukraine. And because of Russia's obliteration strategy, they're going to become refugees in the next month or two. So we're already three times past the largest refugee flows in history, uh, and it's only going to get worse. Um, so what we're doing here is all the sales from all of the books uh, until June 1 are going, all of the proceeds are going to Afya. Uh, and once we get to June 1, we're going to reassess where we are in the war and see if there's a way we can help more. But anyone who can do anything to help uh, Afya or groups like them, I, I heartily encourage. Peter, that's yeah, tremendous. No, yeah, please share that, that on social media and we'll, we'll make sure to get the word out as well. Great. Definitely, definitely. Peter, this has been a tremendous conversation with so much knowledge shared from your experience. Thank you so much for doing this today. And by the way, make sure you follow and subscribe to Peter's work, as well as getting a copy of his current books, The Accidental Superpower, The Dis or Disunited Nations, and there is one more, The Absent Superpower, I think there is. And of course, make sure you pre-order the new book, which is coming out in June, titled The End of the World is Just the Beginning, and there will be a link in the show notes where you can go and pre-order that. You can, of course, find uh, the links as mentioned in the show notes. And as you can tell from today's conversation, we are living in a true global macro-driven world. And it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay well-informed. From Jim and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you as we continue our global macro series. In the meantime, take care of yourself 
and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.